Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. Here at Velocity, we love to hear about how lives are changed. And if that's you, let us know and send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now enjoy today's message. It's kind of a strange word. It's it's an old English word. It literally means God's best, God's blessing, God's success, God's favor, God's increase, God's prosperity. That's, That's what it means. And it was used, like in the 15th century, they would say it more often than we do today, as a pronouncement of a blessing before people would go on a journey. In fact, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines it as a prosperous journey, and that's what we're endeavoring to do in this series, is we're journeying together towards God's best. And we talked about every journey begins with a step, and last week, the first step in this journey is vision getting a vision for where God wants to take you. And we talk specifically about getting a vision for your money, a vision for your finances. In fact, I'm curious how many of you took last week to write down a vision for your financial future? Just show me your hands if you did, all right? Now, if you didn't, I don't want you to just slough that off, be like, oh, I missed it, I'm not gonna do it. Take some time today and just think about and write down what is the vision that God has put in my heart for where I wanna be? Like, where, where do I want to be in the future? Five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. What do I want this to look like? And don't just keep that to yourself, but share it. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it in your group. Talk about it with your family. The, the whole point of last week's message is that to live without a vision is like setting out on a journey without a map or without a destination in mind. See, when, when you have a clear vision, you can measure your progress. You can tell how you're doing. And it's not about all of us having the exact same vision, but it is about us getting clarity of the vision that God has put in our hearts. Now, since we're talking about vision, I want to tell you where we're going in this series. December 10th is going to be the last Sunday in this series. And December 10th is when we're going to be bringing our big end of the year offering. Now, if you're new here every year at our church, we do one big end of the year offering to fund new ministry and new initiatives. And you know, one of the cool things about our church that I love is that when we do this offering at the end of the year, it's not like to get us back in the black. It's not like we're operating at a deficit and hey, we really need you to get like, no, we're giving you an opportunity to fund new ministry and new initiatives. And last year, we were able to be very generous with our city through that offering and we were able to start our second location, which is thriving and doing great. And if you haven't been there, you can check it out. But uh, we started that all through that end of the year offering. Now, this year is no different. We're gonna fund some new ministry and some new initiative. And I'm gonna be talking to you about one of the things that we're doing next Sunday. And I don't wanna give everything away, but one of the things we're doing is we're gonna start a new ministry, start a new work in the Dominican Republic And I I want you to make sure you're here for that because I'm gonna not just talk about what our church is gonna do, but I'm gonna give you some opportunities for how you can be involved with that personally. So that's next week. Today, though, as we get into this message, I wanna talk about the next step in this journey because all of it really depends on you taking a step. And how I'm gonna do this message is I'm gonna approach it two different ways. We're, We're gonna look a little bit at something the Apostle Paul said And I'm going to go back to look at the Israelites and their journey. But I want to frame this up this morning by looking at a scripture in 
the Psalms, one of my favorite Psalms. So you can turn there if you want in your Bibles to Psalm 103, or you can look it up on your phone, your iPad, whatever it is you use, or we'll put the words on the screen for you. But in Psalm 103, uh, this is what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And I love this verse. Because it tells me that despite what I feel, despite what my circumstances look like, I have a reason to rejoice. I have a reason to think. I, in fact, I like the, the words. Like it's almost just kind of a command. Like bless the Lord, oh my soul. Like I'm just going to tell you, despite what's going on, I'm going to tell my soul to bless the Lord. Oh, and forget not all his benefits. Why does it say forget not? Because we're so, we're so prone to forget. Forget not his benefits, how he heals you. He redeems you. He forgives you. He showers you with his love and kindness and mercy. And I want to draw your attention to the last part in this verse, verse 5, where it says, Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So I'm calling this message today, if you're taking notes, Satisfied but not settled. Satisfied but not settled. And if you want, if you don't like that title, if you want to uh, have a subtitle for it, you can call it this, The Contentment Conundrum. The Contentment Conundrum. Because here's the second step in our journey. The second step is contentment. Contentment. Well, let's pray and let's get into God's word. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you that every time we open up your word, that you speak to us and you help us. So God, I'm asking you right now that you would speak to us again and let your truth go forward, let your truth prevail. God, help this to be a clear message, help it to be helpful. And I believe you will in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees with that can say amen. Hey, how many of you would like to be more content in your life? Just show me, let me know that you're here. Now, if you raise your hand, all that tells me is that you are over 35. Because up until that point, all you want is more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Am I right? I mean, I see this particularly with my kids. My, my kids uh, who uh, the ages, you know, range from almost 2 to 11 seem to almost never be satisfied, yet they have so much and they have so easy. Get an amen from the parents, right? Is that just me? The, the crazy thing is, though, I want you to just think with me for a minute, just kind of go back in your mind. I want you to think about the time when you were the most content in your life. Just think about it for a minute. And, and to maybe even frame it up, think about the time when you were the most content, when you had like the least amount of pressure to move up, the least amount of pressure to upgrade. When was that time when you were the most content? Uh, for me, it's super clear. I, I can see it vividly. For me, I would tell you that time was when I was 11 years old. Now, some of you are like, well, obviously, it's when you were like, like what kind of pressure did you have on your life at 11 years old? But I'll, I'll tell you what, when I was 11, uh, my family, we had, we had set out to be missionaries in the South Pacific. And it wasn't being a missionary, that wasn't what did it. It, it wasn't any of that. 
It wasn't being 11 years old, being a kid. Uh, we had sold everything that we had. I remember we had, it's like an estate sale. We had the auctioneers come to our house and just selling everything. And, and I remember getting to the airport and everything we owned, literally every possession, we didn't have anything in storage for when we were coming back. Everything we owned was in two Rubbermaid foot lockers a piece. So there were six of us. We had 12 of them. Everything to our name. And I remember, this is a very mature thought for an 11-year-old, but I remember thinking, man, I, like, what a freeing feeling. H how free it is. Now, the crazy thing is, like, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know when you felt the most content. Maybe uh, for you, it was being back in college. Maybe it was when you had less responsibility in your life. Maybe it was when you were starting out being married. But I've asked this question to multiple people, and time and time again, I hear the same thing. It's always somewhere prior in their life. Now, the crazy thing about this is that if fulfillment and satisfaction is derived from the accumulation of stuff, then everybody's answer should be, I've never been more content than I am right now. Because most of us have more stuff than we have ever had in our life. And if you're here and you're thinking, okay, now, Pastor, I'm confused by this because last week you were talking to me about vision and I'm all about vision. Like I'm all about where God wants to take me and, and, and I'm all about advancing and I'm all about increasing and I'm all about gaining ground like we talked about last week. But now you're talking to me about contentment and it doesn't make any sense. Where are you going with this? In fact, let me ask you a question. When you hear the word contentment, does that seem to contradict and stand in contrast with this sense of moving towards God's best? Because if it does for you, like it does for me, maybe it's because we have a wrong idea of contentment. And I'll tell you what got me thinking in this line is, uh, I wanna share with you a verse of scripture that's found in 1 Timothy chapter six. Now in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul is writing a letter to his protege in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is a young leader of a church and he's left him in charge of this church and when he realizes that he's probably not gonna make it back to see him, he writes him a letter and he starts giving him all these instructions of all these different things that Timothy needs to know and he's like, Timothy, I know you've got responsibility on your plate. I know you've got different people you're dealing with but, but here's the one thing you gotta know, Timothy. He, he tells him this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It's Timothy Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, Tim, I know you're managing a lot. I know you've got a lot of responsibility. I know you're, you're carrying the burden of the church. I know you're trying to move it forward and you've got people you've got to instruct. But, but here's the thing I want you to get, Timothy. Here's the thing that you need to understand is that contentment plays an essential role in advancing and moving forward. Contentment is key. In fact, I would like to say that with me. Just say, contentment is key. Con contentment, it's, it's key. And one of the most common mistakes I see people make with Scripture is when they come to two truths in the Bible that seem like they're opposing truths, they feel like they have to choose one. It's like, well, which is it, Pastor? I mean, is it contentment or is a vision? Because if I'm supposed to be content, why do I need vision in my life? 
And, and like, if I have vision for what God wants to do, doesn't that by definition mean that I'm not content with where I'm at? See, it, the, the, the key is, why can't you have both? Why can't you be satisfied without settling? Why do you have to choose? Contentment, it's, it's crucial towards moving, moving towards God's best. When I'm talking about contentment, I'm not talking about complacency. See, lots of times we think contentment means that you have no dreams for the future, that you just accept whatever comes into your life. But the greatest skill that you can learn in life is to be satisfied without settling. And the reason it's confusing for so many people, the reason we don't get it, the reason we don't understand, is because we don't realize that when you're talking about gain, you don't measure gain by your accumulation, you measure gain by your destination. In other words, it's not about how much stuff I get, it's is this moving me towards the vision God has for my life? Is this moving me towards the vision I have for my life and what God wants to do? Because see, on your way towards a vision, there are gonna be sacrifices that you will gladly and joyfully make in your present content situation. And you'll make those choices so you can live a better future. Dave Ramsey puts it this way, right? He says, live like no one else so later on you can live like no one else. In other words, everybody else might be getting a new car right now, but you're gonna be content driving your hoopty around, right? It means everybody else might be financing their lifestyle through debt and credit cards, but you're gonna be content living within your means. It means everybody else is going on vacations and charging up the credit card, racking up those points, trying to escape, but you're gonna be content knowing that you can rest in the fact that you're taking steps towards a better future, towards freedom. Now, when we're discontent, it can undermine our progress towards the future that God has for us. And I want you to understand, like being discontent is not a sin in and of itself, but it's how we respond to it that can be. And so rather than give you a definition for what discontentment looks like, I thought, I just want to throw out some examples and maybe you can relate to some of these. When, when you're discontent, what are we talking about? What, what is it that you might see as signs that show up in your life? I'm just going to read these to you. You might jot them down or you can think about, just think about, are these true in your life? Some things you'll notice when you're discontent. When you're discontent, you're quick to compare rather than celebrate other people's progress. When you're discontent, everything is a competition. When you're discontent, life is an emotional roller coaster. It's like anything can set you off. You're up sometimes and you're down the next because you don't have this stability of contentment, knowing where your affirmation comes from. When, when you're discontent, you feel like you never have enough. You're always strapped. You're always short. You're always uh, incomplete. When you're discontent, you flow better in negative conversations. It just feels good to complain about my life. Feels good to talk about how somebody else failed. Feels good to criticize something I don't like. 
And rather than rejoice and remember the goodness, you're like, I, wanna, I just want to complain. I just want to get it. It just feels good. You flow better in negative conversations. When you're discontent, you try hard to impress people. It's common for you to be ungrateful. When you're discontent, you feel better about yourself when others' weaknesses are exposed. When you're discontent, you try to rescue everyone because you're not satisfied within yourself. So you're helping others, not really to help them, but to make yourself feel good. I can't take time and walk through and explain each one of those. But I just want to list those out and give you an idea of how this can manifest in your life and how discontentment can invade our souls and rob us of the progress that we really need to make. And if I read those to you and you find yourself maybe in one of those or maybe in multiples of those, perhaps you need to learn the secret of contentment. Because on the other hand, when you're content, it looks like this. It means that you're quicker to compliment rather than criticize. When you're content, you celebrate others' success. When you're content, you're confident with where you are and what you have. When you're content, you're a generous giver. And when you give, you don't feel like you're going to have less. When you're content, you're comfortable learning. Like, you don't have to act like a know-it-all. You can be content just to sit and lean in and say, I'm, I'm learning right now. There's some things that I don't know and I want to get better. When you're content, you listen well. When you're content, you're thankful. You show interest in others. You have meaningful, real relationships. See, when you're content, it doesn't mean that your life is perfect, but you understand how to be happy in different situations. Now, the crazy thing is, when I think about the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this verse that godliness with contentment is great gain, the first word that comes to my mind about Paul is not a guy who was content. It's not a guy who was just content to settle for the status quo. I mean, Paul was a guy who single-handedly took the gospel to most of the known world at the time. Like, like Paul was the guy who God used to pen two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul wasn't this guy that would just kind of sit back and just accept whatever came into his life and just, you know, it is what it is. Whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to be good. Now, when I think about Paul, I, I think about this guy who was relentless in advancing and moving forward. And yet, one of the most famous verses about contentment came from his mouth. And it's not the verse that I just read to you in Timothy. It's actually what he said to the Philippian church. And I want to read it to you. You can read about it in, first, in, in Philippians chapter 4. He's writing to this church in Philippi. And when he's writing this, we don't exactly know where he's at. Uh, we do know that he's in prison, but we don't know where. Honestly, I don't know if it's so important to know where he's at physically as much as it is to locate where he is spiritually and emotionally. And here's what he said in Philippians 10. starts out, 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content. In other words, I wasn't born this way, Lady Gaga. And look, I've learned. I'm content whatever the circumstances, whether, I, whether I'm in the prison or whether I'm in the palace, whether suffering shipwreck or slow Wi-Fi, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. Whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, I've learned that my satisfaction is not regulated by my circumstances. Hey, he says, I, I went to school for this. I've, I've learned. He says it again. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. In other words, this isn't a disposition that you're born with. This is a decision that you make. I've, I've learned this. It's not a character trait. It's a competency. It's a skill. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, here's a secret. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The crazy thing is, it ends with one of the most famous verses Paul gives, which is, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is kind of crazy. How did a passage that starts out with his imprisonment end with Paul talking about how God's going to meet your need, how God's going to help you? See, apparently, Paul has learned something that I haven't learned, that it's not his conditions that determine his contentment. Because Paul's writing here, and he's more free behind bars than most of us are living our own lives and making our own decisions. And see, I think like one of the misconceptions we have about God and about scripture is like that God is all about rules and restrictions and regulations. But one of the things I've learned just in my own study of scripture and the way God works is that God is actually God of endless permission. Even the rules and the laws and the principles that he puts forth in his word aren't designed to keep you hemmed in they're designed to give you freedom. You, you, you see this clearly in the Exodus story. That's one of the first things God did when he was getting them out of Egypt was to begin the process of getting Egypt out of them. Because see, that's the hard part. I, I want you to understand this. The hard part isn't for God to bring you into a land of more than enough. The hard part is for you to learn how to live in it. Let me say that again so I can make sure you're getting this. The hard part isn't for God to get you into the land of more than enough. The hard part is for you to learn how to live in it. That's what we see in the wilderness. We talked about this last week. We made this parallel of their Exodus story into the promised land with the journey that we're going through uh, to get to God's best. We said there's three stages that they went through. Do you remember that? We said there was Egypt, the land of not enough. We said that there was the wilderness, the land of just enough. And there's Canaan, the land of 
more than enough. But everybody has to go through the wilderness, has to go through the land of just enough in order to get to the land of more than enough. And the wilderness was meant to teach them how to be satisfied without settling. Teach them how to be content, how to trust God, how to work. And see, here's the reality. If you don't learn to be content with what God has already given you and what he is giving you, you'll never be content no matter what he gives you. See, that was the problem that the Israelites had in the wilderness. They confused the supply with the source. They, they were looking at what they had just enough, and they thought that that's all there was. And I wonder how many of us get stuck in the wilderness because we've confused the supply with the source. What they didn't realize is that the God who brought them out of Egypt the God who was supernaturally providing for them in the wilderness, God who wanted to take them into the land of more than enough was always a God of abundance. He never stopped being a God of abundance, but they didn't see that. All they could see was the supply. It's kind of like in my house, we have this little tradition. Well, one thing we do uh, before we eat, we always pray over our food. We we say, thanks God, you know, thanks God for this food. We ask God to bless it and, and we pray over it. But I take it one step further. I also teach my kids to say, thank you. Just tell your mom, thank you. Thank you, mommy. We, we, we do that because we want to recognize God's our source. God's our provider. But, you know, God also uses people to meet our needs. And if mom wasn't here, we would not be eating like this right now. So we need to make sure that we tell her thank you. But my wife changed it a little bit when we go out to eat. Because when we go out to eat, we pray over our food. Yes, tell God, thank you for it. And ask God to bless it. But then my wife has taught our kids to say, thank you, daddy. And that's a good thing. But one time, this happened a number of months ago, my son Oliver got up the nerve to say, why should we thank you, dad? You didn't cook it and you didn't bring it to us. And then I spanked him right there. I said, I said, boy, they wouldn't have brought it if I didn't buy it. You, you got to recognize, see, he confused the supply with the source. And, and this is what happens to so many of us. We're looking at what God is bringing into our life. We're saying, I've got just enough right now. And we're thinking that this is all there is. And we settle in the wilderness when we were never supposed to stay there. See, I mentioned this in one of our services last week. The journey to the promised land, while they were going through the wilderness, that was only supposed to be an 11-day journey, less than two weeks. But they turned a season into a settlement because they weren't satisfied. I want to show you how this happened uh, we'll look at a scripture where they got into the wilderness and discontentment began to undermine their progress. It's in Numbers chapter 11. And this is from the message translation. It says, the riffraff among the people had a craving 
And soon they had the people of Israel whining. And I like how it, most of Scripture calls them the children of Israel because it makes me think of my kids. They were whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it for free. To say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and the onions and garlic. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. And then it goes on to describe just what this manna was. It says, now manna was a seed-like substance with a shiny appearance like resin. The people went around collecting it and ground it between stones and pounded it into fine mortar. Then they boiled it in a pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a delicacy cooked in olive oil. So this really wasn't true. It said nothing tastes good. This tasted amazing. It was like a pastry. It says, when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna was right there with it. So they've got this amazing supernatural provision. There's plenty of it to meet their need for what they need for that day. Not only is it supernatural, it tastes good. But a few people start whining. A few people start complaining. And it begins to spread. Man, this is why it's so important that you come to church. This is why it's so important that you go through growth track. This is why it's so important that you get on a team. It's why it's so important that you get in a group. Because you need people in your life who are going to help you move towards God's best. And the people you surround yourself with are going to determine your mindset, which is going to determine your future. It's going to determine where you're headed. It just started with a few people. But before long, it spreads. It's contagious. It's like a virus. Everybody starts whining. Everybody starts complaining. And they think, well, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad in Egypt. They're challenged where they're at. So they start thinking back to how it used to be. No, I remember, I remember how it used to be. Man, I didn't have as much responsibility as I have now. Start thinking how used I when I used to be married. Maybe, you know, before you had kids, I used to be single. Used to live in Topeka. Well, some things you just thank God for with that one. But I'm just saying, (laughs) I used to be. I, I remember how it used to be. And the reason people start looking back is because of a lack of contentment. They're challenged where they're at right now. And see, the reality is when you're coming out of bondage, freedom doesn't feel familiar. When when, when you're moving out of something that's new, you, you tend to want to go back to what's predictable. And so we'll go back to familiar models and familiar mindsets and familiar ways of thinking and we'll choose normal over new. Or it's normal to be stressed out about financial decisions. Where it's normal to buy things on credit. Where it's normal to hold on to everything you have because you think your supply is limited. It's normal. See, God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free of what people think about you. Be, be, Be free of where your affirmation comes from because you know that your affirmation comes from one place, to be free from the need to have more stuff. That's why I think it's so interesting 
going back to Paul now, that God used someone in chains to talk about freedom. Because see, apparently, Paul is more free in chains than most of us who make our own decisions and live our own lives. So evidently, contentment must not be what I thought it was. There must be something different about contentment. And what God was trying to teach the Israelites in the wilderness, and what Paul was trying to teach the church at Philippi, and teach Timothy, is this. Is that when you're dependent on the Christ within you, you can be independent of the circumstances around you. Let me say that again so you can get it. When you're dependent on the Christ within you, you can be independent of the circumstances around you. See, real biblical contentment is to be dependent on Christ and Christ alone. Contentment is when you can be satisfied but not settled. You know, in fact, you really know what settling means? Settling means is to accept something despite being satisfied. It's actually the opposite. And a lot of us settle where we're at. That's what the children of Israel were trying, they were settling where that they turned a wilderness season into a settlement. And so I know some of you are thinking, well, pastor, you got no idea even where I'm at right now. Like I am so far from where I need to be I don't even know if this applies to me. Can I tell you, maybe where you need to be content is to be satisfied with small gains, just small gains. See, so many times we underestimate how much of an impact a small step in the right direction can be. We think because we can't do it all, we don't even try. I was thinking about this this morning how I didn't have this in my notes, but I just felt like I should share it with somebody. I remember, I've been sharing some different stories from early on in my life. I remember being 21, uh, being married, starting out. I told you how we started out, all of that stuff. And uh, I remember making the decision that, man, we're not just gonna be consumers anymore. And we were, we were strapped. I mean, everybody, I think when you're married, you start out broke, you start out with nothing. And we didn't, we weren't just broke, we had, you know, $30,000 in debt. And I remember making the decision, you know what, I'm gonna start saving from my paycheck. And you know how much I started saving? $5. Now some of you might laugh at that, think $5. I mean, is that really the best you could, like that's not even gonna do anything. But see, for me, it wasn't about the amount, it was about the decision and the discipline that I'm not gonna be a consumer. I'm not just gonna consume everything that God gives me, and I'm gonna set some aside, and I'm gonna start there, I'm gonna start small. I didn't stay there, but that is where we started. And we still have that discipline in our life today. But you gotta start somewhere. And see, so some of us, we think because we can't do it all, we don't start at all. And we overestimate what needs to happen in the short term, and we underestimate what God can do in the long term. If you would just start. 
small step, being satisfied with small gains, you'll see God begin to work in your life. See, God can do amazing things when you surrender your heart to him and you surrender your faith to him. Say, God, I'm gonna do this your way. I'm gonna believe your promise. I'm believing that you're taking me to a better future. I'm gonna celebrate your goodness right now. I'm gonna celebrate what you're doing in my life right now. I'm gonna be thankful for it right now. I'm determined not to settle. I'm not gonna settle for less than your best, but I'm gonna stay satisfied from the source. I wanna be like Paul that in whatever situation, whether I've got a little, whether I've got a lot, whether in plenty or whether in poverty, God, I'm gonna be content because my contentment isn't based on what I have. It's not the circumstances around me. It's the Christ within me. So let's make a decision. Let's take a small step. And I don't know what that small step for you is today. Every week I wanna give you a practical application. But be satisfied with a small step in the right direction. Maybe it's like me, that you're not gonna just be a consumer with everything that comes in. I'm gonna say, even if it's $5, don't be embarrassed about that. I'm gonna start being generous regularly. I'm gonna start somewhere. Instead of thinking, because I can't do what I wanna do, I'm not gonna do it, just start somewhere. That's your, that's your step for this week. What's the small step that God would call you to? Don't settle, but be satisfied.